that passage is pretty common. We typically read that passage and realize that the Apostle Paul was talking to Christians who needed to be reminded what their bodies were used for. And of course, the title reminds me of something that goes on in our society called Habitat for Humanity, right? Where individuals take um, their time, they volunteer, and they either build from scratch or, or fix a home and make it habitable for individuals to be able to live in. And it's a wonderful, wonderful opportunity um, that you see in communities taking place all over this country. We got to be doing that with our bodies. Interestingly enough, this passage is used all over the place for all kinds of things, I think far greater than what the apostle had intended, even if the intentions are good, that it's well beyond the text of, of what's here. But what's lesser known is what's behind this text. And I'm wanting us to take some time to see why the Apostle Paul says to Christians that your bodies are for God. It's for his dwelling place. And if we get that, then it helps us because sometimes all we get is just do this or don't do that. That's the way we look at Christianity. In fact, um, oftentimes, well, let's see if I can. Let's see if this will work. Yes, we have a sermon. Okay. <laughs> and so with that in mind, there's a lot of people that, that that's how they view Christianity. Rules. Right? In fact, some will look at Christianity as just updated rules from the Old Testament. You got Old Testament rules and you got New Testament rules. And, and that's the, the extent of Christianity and the view of Christianity. And it's in similar fashion... Although not everyone here thinks this way, there are some that struggle with this in the body of Christ. And that is, with this rule mentality that we've got to do good enough, enough works for us to, without saying the word deserve, deserve to go to heaven. Okay? Because, for instance, if I turn the tables and ask you, what, how much do you have to do to get to heaven? You have to be 90% faithful to God? You know, the flip side is, well, is it 10%? You know, what is the line? Where is it at? And of course, it's our whole life. Our whole life needs to be given to the Lord, right? We know that. But what we have is some mindset that says, I know I don't deserve to go to heaven, but yet that's the way we view our walk with God. And so we have this works mentality that we deserve somehow or earn our way into heaven. And we know from a scriptural standpoint that does, that's not the case. And it is these perceptions among other type of perceptions that distort this view of Christianity. So what I'm wanting for us to do is go through scriptures from the very beginning and explore God's view of quote-unquote Christianity, particularly the phrase that our body is a temple of the Lord. Okay, we'll look at that in 1 Corinthians 6, and then we'll, we'll see how everything wraps up in the rest of God's word for that. And so let's start from the very beginning. I want you to go to the book of Genesis, and I want you to see how that concept in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, as well as other passages in the New Testament, dealing with the body, being the Lord's, has anything to do with what we can see and read of in the very beginning. So, very beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth, we get all the amazing creation, right? All of that creation is for his crowning glory, 
the creation of man that he makes in his image so that man can live within this universe and then within the universe, the planet that we live on so that it's habitable, right? It's a place that we can enjoy living in. And that's what we see in Genesis chapters one and two. And that's what we, we view as very good because that's what the scripture says. Now, I want you to go on to chapter three and there's some, some little nuances that you might have overlooked in the past in your reading that I think really stand out when, when it comes to this concept that we're talking about here. You see, not only did God create the heavens and the earth for man to live in, God's here with man. That's huge. It might be something that you've quickly read over and glossed over and not pick up much on, but that's huge because it's going to play a long, a big role by the time we get to the end of this thing we call the Bible, right? So in, in Genesis 3, look at the passages that we would read of here in verse 8 following. Let me back up to verse 7. After they partake of the fruit that they were explicitly told not to partake of, they sinned against God. It says in verse 7, their eyes or then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. Now, real slowly, verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God, or Yahweh God, walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And continuing on, he goes on, the, the writer, the author does, and says, then the Lord God called to Adam and said, where are you? And so he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid myself. And so what we get from these verses is God's presence right there in the midst. They're together. God's coming, hide. That's the picture. That's the the way the story is unfolding for us. And so if we're paying close attention, God is not some ethereal place. He's in their midst. What you have is this picture of fellowship, a relationship between God and his creation. Now, for some of us that are going to be astute, we're going to think, wait a second. Didn't God just say in chapter 2, let us make woman because I don't want man to be alone. It's not good for him to be alone. So is he alone? Well, that alone, if you look real carefully, was at the, by virtue of the contrast that there's all these animals that, that um, Adam had been naming, right? And there was none like him. So God was going to make another human being so that he would not, in fact, be of his own self. But yet, as far as God is concerned, his presence was there in and amongst them. And what we get is a glimpse then of his presence. There's not much beyond it. All of it is left to speculation as to how that presence was. It is my personal opinion that God was not physical like man, right? But his presence was there and that relationship was real close. That's the picture of what happens in life where there is no sin. God man his creation are together all right and i believe that's what the end will show us even if the picture looks a little different right so 
God and man having fellowship, dwelling together, or tabernacling together. That's the picture that is given for us. We go further in the Bible story, and you see this motif continuing on, right? So here is Israel. They've become a new nation, right? They've been birthed, so to speak, through the promise that God had given to Abraham that I will make you a people. Your name will be great, and so on and so forth, and I'll give you land. So they're in, um, in Egypt. God takes them out of Egypt. They're wandering in the wilderness, and they come to a covenant agreement. I will be your God. You will be my people. And I want you to look at this covenant agreement because there is something else involved in the covenant agreement. So that covenant starts off uh, Exodus chapter 19, 20, and going through, and we pick up in Exodus chapter 24. So I want you to go to Exodus 24, and I want you to read the text with me and see how this picture of God dwelling with man plays a part for when we get to the New Testament. All right, Exodus chapter 24, beginning in, let's see, verse 9. It says, Then Moses went up, also Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and the seventy of the elders of Israel, and they saw the God of Israel. Here's what they saw. There was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stone, and it was like the very heavens in its clarity. But on the nobles of the children of Israel, he did not lay his hand. And so they saw God, and they ate and drank. Hold on to that. Now, Scripture says elsewhere, and this is where some people have Bible study issues and contradictions that they call it, that no man has ever seen God. And here, Scripture says they saw God. Well, here's what they saw of God, and that's what was laid out for us. So what this picture is giving is a beautiful picture of closeness, nearness between God and sinful man. Sinful man that he's come into a covenant relationship that says, I will be your God and you will be my people. And the fellowship aspect is the fact of them being in the presence of God, eating and drinking. That's huge in this motif. That's what we see here as a beautiful, beautiful picture of God and man dwelling together. And so because Israel is made up of mankind and man is guilty of sin, he cannot have this kind of fellowship that we see um, in the very beginning of time between man and God in the garden, right? Man has been taken out of the garden outside of Eden, eastward, if you will. And here, God is wanting to have that relationship with man, and he's providing a means by which that relationship can be had, even though he is God and man is full of sin, right? So that brings us to a number of passages throughout the book of Exodus and Leviticus, that a holy God can dwell with unholy men. Well, how is that possible, God? That's why we have what we call the Old Testament, That's why we have these first five books of Moses, as they're referred to, or the Deuteronomy. So we go further in Leviticus, and we get this very point illustrated in the life of Nadab and Abihu, who are introduced here in Exodus and are brought forward again in Leviticus, particularly Leviticus chapter 10. So in Leviticus chapter 10, this Nadab and Abihu had been in the presence of God. Here's what happens. In verse 1 of Leviticus 10, 
Then Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took a censer, put fire in it, put incense on it, and offered profane fire before the Lord. I would add fire, which he had not commanded them. And as a result, it was fire that went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke, saying, by those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy. And before all the people, I must be glorified. See, they were in his presence. They're near. They're serving as priests. And, and that's going to be a huge role, right? Where priests have to wash themselves and be cleansed and, and be sanctified so that they can do the responsibilities of the priesthood as it pertains to the nearness of God and simple people. Because God cannot have fellowship with sinners. And if, if you are near God, you must regard him as holy. And as a result, glorify him. So that picture later is unfolded throughout all the laws. And all the laws are, here's how you are, are to be holy. And when you're not holy, here's what you do. So just think about the laws, right? If um, you have any uncleanness for whatever reason, maybe there's spit on you, whatever, you're, you're not holy. Go out of the camp. And then when you come back in the camp, make your sacrifice, you're cleansed. And now I'm near you again. That's the picture throughout the Old Testament laws. All of these laws are so that an unholy people can have fellowship and be near a holy God. All right? So don't think of the Old Testament simply as just a bunch of laws, but why these laws are. And it's not just, you know, just obedience to God. It's much more than that. It is inclusive of it. And it's necessary but it's more than that. Otherwise, then Christianity is just simply doing some things, right? That's why Jesus said, you know, you, you worship me with your lips. You do all the right things from the outward signs, but your heart is far from me. So it's not just about obedience, all right? So what we have here then is this concept of God tabernacling with his people. That means to dwell, and that's why we have the tabernacle picture, right? And in the tabernacle, you have the holy and the most holy place, and it's separated, and the high priest can go into the most holy place, but once a year, after he sacrifices and is able to be sanctified and cleansed of himself and of the people of Israel. And then he can be near God for the Day of Atonement, right? So that's the storyline all throughout the Old Testament scriptures and brings us then to this concept, and this concept is a shadow. The whole Old Testament, all these laws that would take place for all these centuries, right, for over a thousand years, was to bring about this concept of God and man dwelling together. And that'll lead us then to this reason why the Apostle Paul says what he does, right? I want you to look at Colossians 2, because this concept of a shadow or a type antitype that is given that the laws regarding the priesthood of the tabernacle slash temple of what is holy and unholy or clean and unclean is talked about right here in Colossians 2. And I want you to read this because he uses this with regard to the relationship that they have in 
Christ Jesus. And that's what's very important about this concept that the Apostle Paul is bringing out. So, again, Colossians chapter 2, read with me from verses 16 and 17. All right. So it says over here in verse 16, Let no one judge you in food or in drink regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths. All these laws, he says, are a shadow of things to come. The substance, however, is of Christ. So when you look back at those laws... And you see laws with regard to the, the priests and how they would cleanse themselves. Shadow. Look, pointing to Jesus. Because he's going to be the true high priest. That covenant that deals with Israel known as a priestly nation is a shadow of the true priesthood in Jesus Christ. And the priestly nation that is found in Christ. We are told by the Apostle Peter that we are a royal priesthood. So there's the shadow, and the real substance points to Christ, his covenant, his role as high priest, and, and thus we are implied to be part of the priesthood, okay? Just New Testament verbiage of an Old Testament concept. Well, that leads us then to other passages like in the book of Hebrews. Oh, it's not in this, well, Hebrews chapter 10 and Hebrews chapter 8. So it's kind of dark, hopefully the text is not too washed out for you. But in Hebrews chapter 8, in Hebrews chapter 10, these things are told to be shadows and patterns of the future covenant in Christ, future priesthood found in Christ, and so on and so forth. So what I'm saying is when we're talking about what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 6, and he refers to our bodies being a temple, if you are a Jew in the first century, all of this is very clearly understood. This temple is like the old temple where we needed to worship God in spirit and in truth. Not simply do whatever we want, you know, burn whatever fire we want, sacrificing to God, right? But we glorify him when we are near him because we love him and we want to have fellowship with our holy God, we who are sinners. That's the picture. So when we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, here's Paul and he takes the, the usage of the word temple. And he takes the usage of this concept of being near to God from the very, very beginning when man has fellowship with God and loses that fellowship. And he applies it to the whole discussion about how we as New Testament believers in Jesus Christ ought to live. You see, the whole purpose of our life, he was saying, is that our bodies are meant for God. They were created by God to have fellowship with him. And if we're going to have fellowship with him, we have to be a holy people. But because we are sinners, we need the blood of Jesus, who is our high priest, who can sympathize with our weaknesses, but uses his own sacrifice as a means by which we can actually be face-to-face, -face, by faith, with our creator. So what does all of this mean then? I want you to read these two passages with me one more time. So he read for us in 1 Corinthians 6. Let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And look what he's saying here. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Let me see here. Let me pick up from verse 5 following. In verse 5 following, he is saying, when we share the gospel, 
We might plant the seed. We might water the seed. But God is the one that gives the increase. And so in verse 11 following then, he says, There's no other foundation that anyone can lay other than what is laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear. For the day, I would add with, of judgment, so to speak, the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. So consider your lives and the deeds in the body that you do as to all these resources that are just listed. And one day, all your deeds and mine are going to be tested. And it's likened unto this fire, and whatever comes through the fire is that which is acceptable. That's the picture that he is giving. So he says in verse 15, if anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved. Yet, so as through fire. Then he says with that, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. Now, for whatever reason, I don't know why this is an issue, but some brethren want to go, is this plural? Is this singular? He's talking to Christians but he's applying it singularly. He can do both. And so you'll see this back and forth in Greek that shows singular and plural. The you is plural and so on and so forth. But he's talking to them individually because naturally, individually, we come together and as members, individual members, we make up the totality of what's called the body of Christ. And so each one of us is going to stand before our God individually, not collectively. We're going to stand and our lives are going to be tested so as through fire, right? If we defile our bodies, in other words, we defile our lives, how can we say we follow Christ? And, and when we look at Christ's example of giving himself, how can we call ourselves Christians if we don't live like Christ followers, Brethren, sometimes I'm, I'm wondering because when we look at our lives and we try to share the gospel with the lost, and remember last week when we were dealing with hypocrisy in the Lord's church? This is the reason why so many who are outside the body of Christ would say, why would I want to be a Christian? But if we truly are Christ followers, our lives are going to be holy. We'll admit when we sin, I've got mine. You've got yours. And when we can acknowledge them and go through life saying, okay, yes, I know I sin, but that's not my lifestyle. That's not what I want to do. It's not how I live my life. My life is one where I honestly give my life to God. People will see that as well. But I hear stories all the time. Preachers in the pulpit. And then when Sunday night comes, he's not in the pulpit. He's at the bar. Or the elders shepherd the flock on, on making great, wonderful decisions and then out in the community living a life that is so contrary to Christ. You have those who are Bible class teachers that teach God's word to our children 
but don't live that way with their children at home. You have church members who are known in the community that live holy lives when it comes to a Sunday and Wednesday and doing everything right that way, but then the rest of the week live lives that is completely unholy. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, when you have this person who is supposedly a follower of Christ having relations with his own family member, right, his mother's wife or his father's wife, he says, you got to deal with that brother. And he goes on into chapter 6 and says, listen, all things are lawful. In my picture, in my mind, I go right back to the garden. All things are lawful except for that one tree right there. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. Use your body to the glory of God, whether it's in your relationship to God himself or your relationship to your fellow man, your brothers and sisters in Christ, the neighbor down the road, whoever it is. That's what's going on when the Apostle Paul is using this picture and says, you don't own your body. You belong to the Lord. He purchased you with the price of the blood of Jesus. And you've made a covenant agreement in this body to glorify God, to come near to him. And if you're going to be near God, you have to be holy. And he's made you holy through the blood of his son. He's made you holy so you can walk a holy life. That's the picture that is given in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. It is a place that he can abide in and dwell in. He can tabernacle because a holy God cannot tabernacle in an unholy body. But when he sanctifies the body, right? And that's the picture of, of Acts chapter 2, right? When he says, repent, be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. I mean, the Spirit of God comes in however and all, however that plays out. He comes in and dwells with us because we've been sanctified. We've been made clean. That's important for us. And how dare us if we minimize the significance of being holy people? So when we come here to worship God, we're not just singing songs with notes. We're pouring our hearts out to him. When the prayer is being led... We're listening to those words, and when we agree with those words, we're talking about living lives holy to God. And when the service is gone and, and the sermon is done, and we go back to our homes, and we go back to our jobs, we go back to our families, our friends, whatever those relationships are, how do we live? Is it holy then, or is it just right here at the building? The more and more we get the picture of what the Apostle Paul was saying when he says, you are a temple of God. And he's talking to them individually and collectively. Then what do we do when we hear this message of who we are? Does God dwell with us? Is our body made habitable for a holy God? That's the good question that you need to ask of yourself. Is it habitable? See, it doesn't matter if you get all the outside stuff right, right? It's called whitewashed tombs or those fences where you just paint the outside, inside just rotted wood. It doesn't matter. 
if you get the outside right. We've got to have the kind of hearts that it's cleansed. And then you'll see this picture in Ephesians chapter 2, a picture that I want us to, to kind of finish with as we close this lesson of how we ought to live our lives as, well, temples. I want you to look at Ephesians chapter 2, and I want you to see how the Apostle Paul is using it with those who are Jews and Gentiles coming together in Christ because it's a beautiful, beautiful picture that you'll see and we'll finish in, well, in Revelation. We'll actually finish off in the book of Revelation, the last chapter. Ephesians chapter 2 says over here in verse 19 following. Now, therefore, you're no longer strangers, foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints, those who've been sanctified, right? Members of the household of God. Think temple. This household of God, the place where he dwells, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the spirit. Well, what does that look like? Well, ultimately, he's talking about Christians coming together, being unified as one, the way the Father and the Son is one. And as you're doing that, where every joint within the body of Christ does what it's supposed to do, it becomes this perfect body. It becomes this perfect house. And when I say perfect house, I'm talking about the fact that through Christ, everyone's striving to follow after him builds up what we call this household of God, this temple, this dwelling place, this tabernacle of our God. And the Apostle John has a beautiful closure that takes us all the way back to the beginning and all the way through time up until this day that we look to have fellowship with God once again. I want you to go to the very last book of the Bible, the last chapter book of Revelation, and I want you to see this vision that the Apostle John has at the very end. Verse 1 of chapter 21. I think I said the last chapter, second to last. You can even go on to chapter 22. It'll build on this picture here. Verse 1. Now, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. Also, there's no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. So here's this picture of this city in his vision coming down from God, from heaven down to earth. That's the picture that is given. Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Think Ephesians chapter 5, right? The two shall become one. And he says, after when he's done, he says, I'm talking about the church. And I heard a loud voice, verse 3, of, from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. Like that Old Testament imagery. And he will dwell with them. And they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. 
You get that? New heaven, new earth. Vision of this city coming, the new Jerusalem coming from heaven, coming down. That's, again, vision. And it's coming down. And then the voice from heaven saying, God is going to dwell with you. He's going to tabernacle with you. That's the picture. He goes on with this new Jerusalem picture in the last verses of this very passage. In verse 22. Here is this temple picture. And yet, he says, of this city of New Jerusalem, I saw no temple in it. Wait a second. Jerusalem has to have a temple because that's, that's what was so key to the covenant relationship between God and man. It is where God dwells, was from the temple, from the tabernacle. But yet John has this vision. It says there was no temple in it. But he goes on to explain why. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or the moon or to shine in it. For the glory of God illuminated the Lamb is its light. And the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light. And the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. That's a picture here. God dwelling with his people. Where's the temple? You're in the very presence of God. This new city is the temple. It's the dwelling place of God. That's where you are dwelling. That's the vision John has. It's a picture like the very beginning. Fellowship. Being near to God. In his presence. And isn't that what we long for as, as children of God? Do we long to have a relationship with God? I mean, I have to admit, when I first became a Christian, I've said it to you a few times in the past. I did it because I just didn't want to go to hell. But I had no idea what heaven or hell was like. But knowing that, that God's word was talking about a heaven and hell, I, I didn't want the hell part. I didn't care so much about heaven at that time. Now I see what this picture of heaven looks like. It's a place where we dwell in the presence of our creator. And it's far greater and more glorious than we can even conjure up and imagine. So if that's the case, how do we live our lives here on earth? Do we live as individuals where our body is habitable for our creator? Think about that. When you walk out this door and you have a relationship with your Husband, your wife, your mom, your dad, your son, your daughter, your brother, your sister, your neighbors, your co-workers. What kind of relationship do you have with them? Is it one where God can dwell with you? Where he can be in your presence as you are in his? Or do you live on holy lives? Because God has no place for that. He made you to have holy lives. Because that's what... Heaven is going to be a place of holiness, a place where God dwells and all those who are holy dwell with him. That's the picture at the end as it was in the very beginning, before sin came into the world, and before God gave us a picture, a shadow, through the temple and through the tabernacle. So, ask you that question. What's your life like? How are you living it? If you need to repent... The whole purpose of the invitation at the end is not to shame you other than the fact that it's a good thing to have shame that shows a good conscience. 
but it's for you to be cleansed. And by all means, we're all sinners before our God. Without the blood of Jesus, we all stand guilty. So we all need prayers. But if you're willing to confess your faults, your sins, by all means, we're here to be with you and to pray with you. And I pray, if you're here this morning and you have not put on Christ, you may be the most righteous person that everyone knows, but without the blood of Jesus, you are still a sinner. And those sins can be washed away. You can be sanctified. You can be made holy by the blood of Jesus. That's a gift that he longs to give you. Do you long to be in his presence? I do. I hope you do as well. The invitation is for you. Together we stand and sing.